Let's pray. We love you, Father. We honor and praise you and glorify you. You're so awesome. You're so great, mighty. You're so long-suffering and compassionate. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. 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 Hallelujah. 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 <clears throat> Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus' name. I said the first night, and I'm going to say it again at the beginning of the ninth session, and I may say it tonight in the last session. This... uh, Call it worse, different. They're all, all three, all four of them have been very different. Uh, each one has approached the subject differently. With that, there was no intent on my part. I'm just trying to obey God. And uh, if you have not watched uh, any of the first three, then you probably should do that for your own edification. Last year, before last year, uh, I felt led and promoted the meeting pretty heavily on uh, Twitter and Facebook, and I kept emphasizing the fact that people, before they came to the meeting, that they should watch the two previous years. Um. And uh, all, all three has been such a completely different approach to the same subject. Uh, but I, I said the first night, and I'm for those of you who heard it, I'm repeating it, and those of you who didn't hear it, uh, you'll hear it first time. That as awesome as those meetings were, the problem was, uh, and I didn't realize this till after the fact. People were too narrowly defining spiritual warfare. Uh, So they were too narrowly practicing, quote-unquote, spiritual warfare. 
I said the other day, yesterday, one of the sessions, that because of the fact that we uh, are, we live in one world and we're in, supposed to be in tune with the other world, and that other world uh, <clears throat> has two dimensions or forces to it, um, and man, through sin, forfeited his dominion over the earth that God gave him, and the adversary now has that dominion, is therefore called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that we are an invading force, and there is nothing legitimate that we can do that involves God that is not opposed by the opposer. The adversary opposes all that is called God. Second Thessalonians 2, 3. He opposes all that is called God. And then when people try to have church, either ignorant of this opposition or living, ignoring the opposition, there's absolutely no way that anything of true spiritual significance, eternal spiritual significance, can be accomplished. And uh, just just a casual reading of the accounts written about the things that God did in the first 20, 30 years of the last day outpouring that began or the last beginning of the outpouring that began the first part of the last century. Uh, it became very quickly obvious that everything they did was founded upon and undergirded by prayer. And, uh, boy... I wish I could say to you that growing up in this, I had had an opportunity to be a part of a church someplace that truly put the emphasis on and practiced prayer like the uh, apostles did, the early church did, and also like the pioneers did at the beginning of the last century. But I have not. I have not. Uh, I will tell you this, that anything significant that has ever been done in this city, and to go from two people to this and more, uh, in any length of time, there has to be some significant times of prayer if not consistent prayer, there has to be at least some significant times of prayer. And there has been. There there has been. But in here, I know that we have fallen short of the level of consistency that the Lord would desire and that is required to truly see a continuous work of the Spirit. 
it is promised, I believe it's Amos 9-11, it's promised that there would be a day when the plowman would overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that, uh, how's that go? Tills the soil or something like that. I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember. The, uh, in studying that, I have come to the personal conclusion and have read that others have come to the same conclusion. There it is. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the tread of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. It is a, uh, <clears throat> It is a very, very, very simple study to confirm that this verse implies uh, that God is going, there's going to be a time where God suspends the normal principles of harvest. Just the statement, the plowman overtaking the reaper, the uh, biblical grain crop was a winter wheat harvest or winter barley and wheat harvest. And the plowing is done in uh, November, could be late October, could be early December, but in that period of time after the early rain, uh, which softens the ground up enough to be able to plow it because from the time of the end of the gleanings sometime in June until the early rains start, the ground has been fallow and it is baked under that hot Palestinian sun. There is no way in a natural grain harvest that a plowman can overtake the reaper. Can't be done. It's all out of whack of the seasons and the principles and all that. So the conclusion comes here that there is going to be a time in the in time during this worldwide apostolic revival and harvest that I believe with everything in me is going to happen between now and the rapture. And this is a completely different subject that I will not go beyond right where I am right now, but I believe with everything in me in a pre-Daniel 70th week rapture. A pre-time of Jacob's trouble rapture. Those are the biblical terms for that period that we have misnamed the Great Tribulation. And there's no biblical basis for naming it Great Tribulation. But there is a biblical basis for calling it Daniel's 70th week or the time of Jacob's trouble. And I am believing the rapture taking place before Daniel's 70th week. I believe that with everything in me. And... uh I believe that the outpouring that fulfills the promise, to the vow made to Abraham, et cetera, et cetera, 
is going to be a series of very rapid multiple harvests where in the spiritual perspective or from the spiritual perspective, the plowman truly does overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes in that soweth seed. Because it will be a, there will be rapid multiple harvests that totally, completely uh, violate all the principles, the biblical principles of harvest. And of course, God's the only one that can do that. And I don't know that he's ever done that naturally, but he is going to do that spiritually. He is going to do that spiritually. And uh, <clears throat> we have to be positioned if we're going to participate in it. We are so caught up in worrying about whether or not God is going to do his part that we don't do our part, which demonstrates our faith that he's going to do his part. We don't do it. The average church has made virtually no preparation for a real harvest. I'm going to rephrase that. The above average church, the average above average church, has made no significant preparations for a major harvest. Haven't done it. I've told this story many times, but a friend of mine called and said, you you know, Brother Wright, you've been to this church and preached, yeah? And you know what kind of awesome worship we have, yeah? You know this, they're praying people, yeah. You know the prayer, people's all the time praying and fasting, filling up the prayer room all the time, yeah. And we have promises of God, yeah. Why aren't they coming to pass? And I said to him, you don't really want to know the answer to that. He, oh, yeah, 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 I do. No, 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 you don't. No, you don't. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, well, you're not going to like the answer to this question. Well, tell me anyway. Okay, I warned you. If people, 50 people walked in your building this weekend, like you say you're believing for, and all 50 of them got the Holy Ghost, tell me the names of the people you've got trained and on standby just to be able to greet them coming in the door, to get their information in the altar area. Tell me the names of the people that you've got trained to teach Bible studies to them. Tell me the names of the uh, the leaders you've got trained to do the home groups to be able to nurture them because you can't nurture them in church. Tell me your plans for expanding ministry and what plans you have for new ministries so you can put these people to work once they have been settled in the church so that they can be a part of the church. 
And if you can't tell me any or all of that, then that's why you're not having revival. doesn't really matter to a degree. It doesn't really matter how much you pray and fast. If you don't have any faith that's demonstrated that you believe your praying and fasting is going to work. And just having plans to better your church services proves nothing. You cannot disciple people in a church service. It's by definition, it's not the purpose. You can't nurture babies in a church service by definition. That's impossible. You cannot build horizontal relationships between the saints to fulfill the word of God that says, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how do you love love God that you haven't seen? So you can't build and grow horizontal relationships in a church that are necessary to support spiritual vertical growth, spiritual relationship growth, because you, you can't do that at church service. Church services are by definition vertical relationship oriented, and you can't build or develop or grow horizontal relationships in a church service. Can't do it. Can't be done. It's not possible. Doesn't matter I'm singing. How great the preaching is. You can't do it. It's not possible. So. I'm talking about this. And and I've got a lesson here. The Lord's told me to teach. I'm going to teach it. But, you know, wow, I'm just, what the Lord said to us today, and all that preparation to uh, really help us maintain and to flow in the spirit of prayer, and all that's going to produce results, and that harvest is going to be spilled on the ground. And consumed by the wild at beasts because there's no way to take care of it. Because we've made no plans to take care of it. We've been doing home groups since 1983. And I can tell you right now. There were periods of time that I neglected them, and they became very ineffective when I I neglected. I neglected them. I neglected them. But biblically, and I I believe I can prove this biblically, you cannot nurture a harvest without home groups. Can't do it. Call them what you will. We call them care groups. The, the 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 most popular, latest buzz name is life groups. So be it. Call them life groups. I could care less. Some call them home fellowship groups. 
a few still call them cell groups. I don't care what you call them. It's the principle that's important. Because what can be accomplished in a home group cannot possibly be accomplished in a church service. It's not, it's not, it's not even remotely possible. Because we would so have to completely change our church services so that they didn't even look like church services anymore to accomplish the same thing that can be easily, much more easily accomplished in a home. That's why the early church had two dimensions of its ministry, publicly and house to house. And that wasn't talking about knocking on doors. When the guy fell out of the window after Paul taught past midnight, that what he didn't fall out of the window of a church building. <laughs> he fell out of a window of a house where he had been ministering a long time. So since I've never ministered that long and never had anybody fall down dead while I was ministering, I consider that I'm not near as long-winded as the Apostle Paul. Well, either I'm absolutely deceived or I really am flowing and hearing repeating. And if that's the case, it's the Lord that's the one long-winded. Praise God. I'm putting that out there, just, just dropping that. If you're at all interested in hearing more on that, uh, there's a few things you can do about that. We have an entire seminar Online for free. You don't even have to sign up for anything. And the name of it is the Right Hand of God Seminar. There's a syllabus that goes with that. You don't have to buy it. it not trying to sell anything. But it is, uh, there's a lot of study material in there. There are three primary lessons. Uh, I taught the foundational stuff. Uh, in the three night sessions, and we had a large number of our staff that taught a lot of the how-to stuff. And it's they did a great job, and it's really good stuff. Uh, but I, I taught the first session I taught was uh, the, the right hand of God, apostolic church structure. And then the second one I taught was, no, that was the one I actually called apostolic church structure. That's the revelation of the care ministry. And uh, then I thought the, I, the the third session that I taught, which was the last session of the seminar, is <clears throat> biblical evangelism. Because uh, you will find very quickly that our primary method of evangelism, which is invitation evangelism, is targeted to people that have land they haven't seen that they bought, that have oxen they bought that they haven't proven, and wives that are their excuse for not being involved. Invitation evangelism usually doesn't work. There is biblical evangelism. I didn't say it can't work, but in order for invitation evangelism to work, it can only be worked through spirit-led 
visitation. Invitation evangelism where you just go out and throw out a bunch of flyers or blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's, it's usually not very productive. But if you, if you are going to use quote unquote invitation evangelism, you have to be led of the Spirit to the door of a hungry person so that when you knock on that door, they're waiting on you. And I've had that happen in my life numerous times. And it's the most amazing thing. I was evangelizing. We were in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, the pastor and I were out on visitation. And we went out this particular day, and we were praying to see where we were supposed to go. And we got to this one neighborhood, and we started on one end of the street and talked to a few people and nothing happened and we were supposed to meet everybody back at church and so we we stopped right in the middle of that street and went back to the church the next day we went out we weren't feeling any specific direction he said what, what are we going to do i said why don't we go back to that street we stopped on yesterday so we did and we we started on the opposite end of the street worked back to the middle and just as we got back to the middle of the street again, we uh, <clears throat> we encountered a fellow on the porch in a swing. He was a deacon in one of the local Bible Belt churches. He that hath the ears to hear can interpret that for himself. And uh, he's sitting there smoking, and we couldn't get a word in edgewise. And I'm just frustrated out of my mind. And it was a the best conversation we'd had in anybody. We were having a conversation. He was talking all kind of trash to us. We are standing there. The pastor thinks this is an awesome deal because we've <laughs> finally got somebody to talk to. And, and, I'm, and I'm easing off the porch and trying to ease down the sidewalk without being too obvious and offensive, trying to send him the message, can we please go, can we please go? And he just kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. Oh, God, have mercy. So finally he quit talking. We were, we were walking out of the, out, off the sidewalk or out, off his sidewalk out onto the, through the gate on the main sidewalk. And we, we were really supposed to be back to meet the other people on visitation. And, and, uh, he said, well, are you ready to quit? I said, I started to say yes. And I said, no, let's try one more door. And we walked across the street. Knocked on the door. There was nobody home. What a bummer, man. So we, we walked back down the sidewalk from the porch. I had my back to the street. He had gone through the gate. I had my back to the street, and I was closing the gate. And a car pulled up behind me. And this lady got out. And I, uh, I said, I'm. Reverend so and so, and this is Reverend so and so, and we're, we're here, uh, from such, such church, and, uh, we're having revival. We just wanted to stop by and invite you to come. And when I'm doing that, I don't ever give them a chance to say anything at that point. I immediately ask a question Have you ever been in Pentecostal service before? And then, you go from there. And she, 
she interrupts me. She said, you know, I don't understand the Bible. Could you take a few minutes to explain it to me? Okay. So we walk inside, and the pastor sits over in a chair, and he lets me do this. He just, you know. I sit down on the couch with her with my Bible, and I'd never done this before, but I started with, with the promises in the Old Testament of the coming New Testament, and I showed her what the Bible says the old in the New Testament, that the Old Testament was promised to be, and then what Jesus said the New Testament was going to be, and then how the New Testament was fulfilled, and that this is for us today in Acts chapter 2, etc., etc. And she, I said, do you have any questions? She said, no. Well, yeah, I do have one question. She said, I was sitting on this couch yesterday about this time, and I had my Bible open, and I was trying to read it, and didn't understand it. And I just looked up to God and said, I can't understand this. Would you send somebody to explain it to me? And then she said, where were you? I was expecting you yesterday. We quit at the house next door to hers the day before. Out of that one door, in the next 10 days, we baptized seven adults. Her and her husband and their friends. And two of those people are in the ministry today. That's the only way invitation evangelism works. That's how Brother Libby was one. On the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's. Out trying to find the flow of the Spirit. Trying to be led of the Spirit. And being led to his house. And uh, to make a very long, enjoyable, to tell story short. uh, That was on a Wednesday. And they walked in the door of our service on on Saturday night with a towel and a change of clothes under their arms. First time they ever walked in our, our building, they came with the stuff to be baptized. Why? Because they asked what they were supposed to do. And I said, well, this is when we're having service. Just come with the towel and close to be baptized. And they did. It didn't take a lot of faith believe God something was going to happen that night. It really didn't. It didn't take a lot of faith. So if you're... If you're not going to be led of the Spirit to do invitation evangelism, which is determined, all the success of it is all determined about, first you have to be sensitive to the Spirit, and then you have to be uh, experienced and follow the Spirit. And so you're trying to end up at the right place at the right time, which is only possible through the Spirit. When you do that, you can have results, and sometimes they're amazing results. Amazing results. But that's the only kind of invitation evangelism that works. Jesus showed up at a well at an appointed time. He wasn't canvassing all the people in Samaria. 
He said, I must needs go through Samaria. Because the Jews would walk all the way around Samaria because they were so anti-Samaritan. Because the Samaritans were half-breed Jews. And worse than that, they had mixed other gods into their worship of the God. And Jesus shocked him and said, I must needs go through Samaria. And when you said to the Greek there, he's actually saying, I've got an appointment. In Samaria. And because he knew that they would be appalled at him talking to this woman, he sent them into town to get meat so he could stay at the well and wait for her to show up because she'd have been intimidated by their scowls. And we know that that was a, an excuse because when they came back with meat, he didn't eat because he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He was just getting them out of the way because they would have been in the way of him ministering to this person that he had a divine appointment to talk to. He just happened to walk by a tree that Zacchaeus was up in. Really? He said, come down, I'm going to your house today. Did that just hit him spur of the moment? He prayed that morning. He was looking for that tree and the guy in the tree. He and the father had a conversation about that that morning. He had direction. He knew what was going to happen. Praise God. I'm procrastinating. I got to talk about an army officer. You know how hard it is for a Navy man to receive instruction from an army officer. That's when you know really God is really testing you. Acts chapter 10 verse 1. This is carnality. This is not in the spirit. This is just Chester right, right here. This is one of my favorite sayings. The first Gentile to get the Holy Ghost was an army officer. Yes. And it was a sailor that preached to him. Now that I can did that, I can get back in the spirit. Acts chapter 10 verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. He was a Roman army officer. He was a centurion because he was over a hundred men. He had a hundred men under him. His, his, the, the, the size of the group he commanded was a hundred men strong. He was a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thine prayers and thine alms are come up 
for a memorial before God. Next verse. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And if you're questioning whether or not he was referencing Cornelius' salvation, Acts chapter 11, when Peter is retelling this story, Peter says that the angel said, Send men to Joppa, call for one Simon. He shall tell thee what you ought to do to be saved. Tell you what to do to be saved. Cornelius is a uh, an interesting study because the denominal world does not preach about Cornelius. The uh, the saved by grace and not by works perversion of that doctrine, they don't preach about Cornelius either. Because Cornelius blows every one of their doctrines completely out of the water. Because when you study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation... The only two things that you will find that Cornelius and his household did after Peter showed up that they had not done before Peter showed up was they received the Holy Ghost and talked in tongues and then were commanded to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And some manuscripts have there commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. In fact, you will not find any place in the scripture where he was more devoted after Peter got there and he received the Holy Ghost got, got baptized. You will not find where he feared God with his house more after Peter showed up. You will not find where he gave more after Peter showed up. You will not find where he prayed more after Peter showed up. The only difference in Cornelius and his household after Peter got there than before Peter got there was he received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues and he was baptized in Jesus' name. Is it any wonder the denominal world ignores Cornelius. I have named him myself, for myself, the forgotten man of the Bible. They never preach about him. They can't preach about him. He totally undermines their doctrine. And if you think that's a true statement beforehand, we're going to do just a little bit of mining of the Greek here. And you're going to find really, really quickly how absolutely astounding this man was. If he had been living before, if he'd been living this life before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he would have been considered 
your model saint. Seriously. There couldn't have been anybody under the old covenant that lived for God any better than Cornelius did. He would have been the model saint before the death, burial, and resurrection. And he was a lost person afterwards. That's what the angel said. Now, you want to know what this is headed to. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about why you should pray and everybody else should pray. I mean, really pray. We're going to talk about it. He was a devout man, one that feared God with all of the house, gave much alms to people, prayed to God always. There is a sequence to this. These things are in this divine order on purpose because it's the progress his faith went through. His faith progressed through these steps. Strong says the word devout means well reverent or pious. He wasn't just reverent. It had the prefix on there for well. He was well reverent. He had a reverence for God that was beyond what most people had. He is a Gentile. He is stationed in the, in, in, in the promised land. He is stationed in Israel, put there by the Roman government. But somehow, this Roman, this Gentile, somehow this man had made some kind of connection with the God of Israel. Remember the centurion, and I don't believe it's the same one, but remember the centurion that Jesus met? A messenger came and said, uh, the centurion servant sick. Well, in some of the stuff I've read, the messenger was a Jew sent by the local leaders because this centurion was so involved in, in, in being compassionate to the Jewish people. And they were sent to persuade Jesus to take his time for a Jew. And so he agrees to come. And this centurion says, no, no, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But I'm under authority. I know how that works. You've got authority. I speak the word. Somebody says, go. I say, go, they go. I say, come, they come. I say, do, they do. So if you'll just speak the word, my servant will be well. And Jesus said, I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. I haven't found this kind of faith in Israel. I don't think it's the same centurion. It may be. I don't know. But somewhere along the line, that guy's not named, so it may be. But somewhere along the line, Cornelius had an encounter with God 
with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had a reverential awe of God, as proven by the next. He starts out pious, showing deference to. Uh, the word devout means sacred awe, describes reverence exhibited, especially in actions. Reverence or awe well directed. Uh, it says that this, this word well devout means it directs us rather to the energy which, directed by holy awe of God, finds expression in devoted activity. In other words, he had such awe of God, it caused him to act on it. What was the first act? He feared God with all his house. The first thing he did was he took his awe of God and transmitted it to his household. Now, in this context, that wouldn't have been just his wife and kids. This man influenced his wife, his kids, all of the servants of his house, everybody that worked for him. And in this context, it is possible to even include his hundred soldiers in technically his household. It was not a small group of people. And he had affected these people. His awe of God caused him to act in such a way that it brought the, his entire household to the place that they feared God to, like him. What, what was the next thing it did? He, com, he was compelled to do more. He got involved with people in need. The word alms means compassionateness, especially as exercised toward the poor. It means mercy, pity, especially as exhibited in giving alms, charity, the benefaction itself, a donation of the poor. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing the fact that he must have gave money to help poor Jews. But the spiritual application for us is this. We are rich in God. We have been given his name. We've been washed in his blood. We have, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. We have supernatural manifestations in and through our lives. We are rich if we are devoted to God. We have awe of God. <coughs> it will cause us to be, to influence our households positively. That doesn't mean you take your axe and 238s and beat your family over the head with it and try to force them into the gospel. But he lived his devotion to such a degree that their opinion of him and his devotion caused them 
to want what he had, giving him an open door to share that with his family. And he did it with such effectiveness that they all feared God like he did. But that wasn't enough for Cornelius. It wasn't enough. In his travels back and, forth, back and forth between his house and his, his place of duty, he, he saw these people in need. And, and, and he didn't think, well, I'm a, I'm a Roman and these are Jews. No, he was a human and he saw other humans. He had some kind of a connection to God and he could not pass people by that were in need. And he didn't have the Holy Ghost. And I'm asking you, how do we constantly pass the spiritually poor by and feel no compassion? And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were a sheep having no shepherd. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will thrust out laborers into the harvest. The Greek word is thrust out. It's not send forth. That's way too placid. I said it the other day. I'm saying it again. The Greek word there is ekbalo. It's the exact same Greek word used to talk about Casting devils out of human beings by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus told us to pray that we would pray until the power of the Spirit ejected Holy Ghost filled believers out of their safe sanctuary out into the harvest field. If we're not going to even pray the Lord's prayer request, what are we praying? I mean, that he told us to pray that. That's the Lord's prayer request. When's the last time you prayed it? <laughs> well, you know, there's there's a slight problem praying that. Because if you pray it and you're still hiding in the house and you're not out in the field, you may be the one that gets ejected. I was still in the ground school portion of flight training. Hadn't flown yet, but we were going through all kind of stuff. We could go through the Dempsey Dumpster where you got this kind of cockpit deal and you're all strapped in. You slide down this rail and it turns you upside down underwater and you have to successfully get out of that and come up out of the water if you close your eyes they fail you you got to do it again you'll do it how many times it takes for you to do it not close your eyes and get yourself out of that now they have divers down there in case you get in trouble which wouldn't be in a regular crash but at least the point is they want you to have the sensation of being strapped in uh, in a cockpit underwater and and be able to keep your head cool and get yourself out of there well, another one of those deals is they had this rail and this seat. <laughs> and it was an ejection seat experience. You're not actually in a plane, but you're in a cockpit. And you're all strapped in. And you pull that thing, that shield down over your head. <laughs> 
And one minute you're sitting there, and next minute you're floating down from the top. Because before you know what happens, pow, this explosion takes place right under your backside and just shoots you like a projectile straight up in the air on this rail. And then they have some hydraulics that slow you down at the top. And then it lets you gradually float back down and let you out. It was over so quick, I don't know what the experience was all about. You couldn't get people to pay to do that at the fair. It was over too quick to get any fun out of it. The point I'm making with this narration is that I have a little bit of experience with an ejection seat. I've also had the opportunity to be strapped into a plane that was on a catapult on a carrier when they fired that thing off. And you're, you're sitting there, you're sitting there one second and you're doing 120 miles an hour in about a second and a half. And a lot of guys actually black out for a second because there's so much pressure on you. But you know what? You're flying. You better be flying or you're going to crash because you're out there. I'm sorry. That's my experience. But that's what comes in my mind when I think of praying that. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would eject laborers into the harvest. Now, oh God, what in the world is wrong with us? That God has to get go to such extremes just to get us to be involved in his harvest. And apparently, it's not just 2014 saints. Because both in Matthew and in Luke, it's recorded. Same, same prayer request, same Greek word, ekbalo. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into this harvest. Now compare that to Cornelius. Here is a non-baptized believer. He's believing all he knows to believe. He's got some kind of experience with God because he's got awe of God. And that awe of God is causing him to act like he's got awe of God. And his actions cause his family to see this and they question him and he gets to share what he feels and how he sees God with them. And his whole household then begins to fear God because of him. But that's not enough for this guy. He sees people in need, and he begins to do what he can for them. He starts out helping them materially. But, oh, my friend, somewhere in this process, he started praying for these people. And I, I used this verse last, uh, this word last night. It was the root word of supplication. But it is used as the word in the Greek to describe Cornelius' prayer. 
when Cornelius began, and, and this word proves that he wasn't just praying devotional prayers. This word proves, this Greek word proves he was praying for people and asking God to do something for them because it's the Greek word that means to beg as binding oneself, which is petition. He was petitioning God to do something for these people. But he didn't separate himself from the answer. His urgency, his desire to see these people helped caused him to put himself on the line for the answer's sake. And I said it last night, I'm going to say it again today. It's not beg in the sense of the humiliation of somebody that's without having to ask for help from somebody that's got it. No, this word beg here in this context talks about the, the focus. It talks about the intensity. It talks about the urgency. It talks about the desperation of the one making the petition that they want God to do something so bad that they don't leave themselves as a bystander in the prayer. God, whatever you need me to do, whatever you you ask of me to do to be a part of this answer, so be it. I commit to be a part of the answer however you choose for me to be a part of the answer. Just do something for these people. And if he prayed that way for people who were just in natural need, that he saw their natural need and not only gave to them, but prayed for God to intervene for them, what kind of praying should we do for those that are in spiritual need? A verse that every child of God ought to be able to quote. Psalm 79, 11. Some of you unfortunately have heard it way too many times. And I say unfortunately because I hope it's affected your life. I'm not so sure it has. Let the sighing of the prisoners come before thee. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those that are appointed to die. I've had people tell me, oh, you're just quoting a prayer to God for him to let the sign come before him. And according to his power, I, I got you. Because according to Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And so that, that therefore, that means that verse is spoken to us. Let, allow, permit, choose to be affected by the sighing of the prisoners. Let it come before you.
according to the greatness of thy power. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they'll cast out devils. They'll, they'll speak with new tongues. The last one is they'll lay hands on the sick and shall recover. Power. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the adversary. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Power. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those that are appointed to die. Have you ever prayed enough that you can hear their sighs? Have you ever prayed enough that you can feel their sighs? Have you ever gotten tuned enough into the Spirit that you can feel the Lord's desperation to help them? Have you ever? It's a pitiful sound. You talk about groanings which cannot be uttered. They don't even have the Holy Ghost to help them. They don't know what they need. They're blind. If our gospel be hid, it's hid, they are lost. In whom the God of this world are blind to the minds of them, but believe not. They're blind. They don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they need. They don't know what's wrong. They don't even know what to say. They don't know what to ask for. All they need, all they know to do is sigh. That's all, that's all they know to do is sigh. They don't even know how to put it in the words. All they know to do is sigh. All they know to do is sigh. And they have no guarantee that anybody's listening. They don't even know who they're sighing to. But they have no other way to express their plight. (sighs) My good friend and brother, Brother Mike Cummings, as he was in his last stages of cancer, I remember going to his house one day. And oh, the devil was beating him up because he couldn't pray. But the whole time I was sitting there, he'd go, ah, ah. And he said, oh, Brother Wright, I can't pray. And I said, oh, Mike, are you kidding me? Not pray? My Bible says every one of those sighs is a prayer. And your father's listening. Every one of those sighs is a prayer. Don't let the adversary lie to you. Every one of those sighs is a prayer. And he's listening. But we don't spend enough time in the presence of God to get sensitive enough to hear what the Father's saying. How could a Holy Ghost, a non-Holy Ghost filled man after the day of Pentecost have that kind of relationship with God that he could hear 
And then it moved him to do stuff that was so out of character for his kind. He was not only a Roman, he was a Roman army officer. Where did that compassion on those poor Jews come from? He spent so much time with God that he heard their sighs. He didn't have the Holy Ghost He didn't know what to do for him. He just had to do something. How how can we be so inactive? How, How can we be so inactive? I'll tell you how we're so inactive. Because we're so prayerless. We spend so little time with God. We don't ever have the privilege of Him letting you hear, let hear what He's hearing. Because I, you hear me right now. If you ever experience hearing what He's hearing, you'll never be the same person again for the rest of your life. If you ever, ever, ever hear those sighs drove him to the cross, drove him to the prayer to get past his feelings of self-preservation. It was the sighs of the prisoners who needed to be set free that drove him to that cross. Oh, God. You know why we're not dead to self? Because we've never heard the sighs that would compel us to die for their sake. He's not asking me to be, to die on his cross. He's asking me to take up my cross and die. Not to cease to exist, but to live dead here now because of the size of these people that do you understand? They can't help themselves. Do you understand that they are helpless? They're not lost because they want to be. They're lost because they don't have anybody to deliver them, to help them. Are you kidding? Would you please choose to allow the sighing of the prisoners to come before you? Would you choose, would you choose to allow that? Oh, Jesus. You're not going to hear their sighs praying an hour a day. You're not going to hear their sighs going through your religious motions. You're not going to hear their sighs when all of your prayer is about you and your little world and your family alone. No, 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 no. You're not going to hear those sighs like that. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not going to hear those sighs like that. You got to get past you. You got to get past what you need. You got to get past yourself. You got to get past all of that. You got to get tuned into what's important to Him. And if you do, He'll trust you to hear His sighs. Hear the sighs.
Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Jesus. said your prayers and your alms have come up memorial before God and that word memorial in the root context means to stay in the mind and chew you understand when you reach this place you've got God's attention you've got God's attention ask what you will and it shall be done because now You've got God's attention. You've got God's attention. He's tuned into you now. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's find some place to pray. I, I can't do any more of this. <clears throat>